Today we return to our study of the book of Romans, and we're going to pick up exactly where we left off last time, which is in the ninth chapter and the 24th verse. So Romans chapter 9, verse 24 is where we're going to start, and I encourage you to get a copy of this passage in front of you. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll see this on page 945. And because it's been so long since we have uh, been in Romans due to a variety of circumstances, I want to take just a minute and reset the context of Romans 9. If you look at those first five verses in Romans 9, you'll see that Paul laments the fact that his fellow Jews do not seem to be very responsive to the gospel. He laments their spiritual condition. Only few of them are turning to Christ. And they seem indifferent or even opposed to the message that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah, the Son of God, who's the Savior of the world. And so he writes in verses 2 and 3. Look at those two verses at the beginning of Romans 9. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He wants to see his fellow Jews saved. His heart is broken that so many of them are not being saved. He wants them to know what it means to have sins forgiven. And yet, so many of them are not experiencing that. The message of salvation that God sent his one and only son into the world to save sinners and that he has done that by his life and death and resurrection. That is what Paul has been preaching. He's preached it throughout the whole Roman Empire as far as he could go. He's preached it in Jewish synagogues and town squares in private homes publicly. Yet this message of God's grace in Jesus Christ to save all who believe has largely been rejected by the Jewish people, the very people that God chose in the Old Testament to be his own people. People he chose to bless and prosper and to save. So here's the dilemma. If God promised to save and bless his old covenant people, which he did, and if relatively few of those old covenant people are receiving the blessings of salvation that come in the gospel, then the question has to be asked. Has God's promise failed? Has God's word failed? What we read in the Old Testament? Did God promise something that he can't deliver? Verse 6 gives Paul's answer to that question. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The word of God has not failed. He makes that point emphatically and then spends the rest of chapter 9 and in reality chapters 10 and 11 explaining why that is true. He's concerned that God's people understand that what God says, He does. What God promises, He fulfills. And when it looks like it's not happening the way that God said He was going to act, we can be sure that the problem is our perception, our understanding, our recognition of what it is He's actually 
promised. God's word has not failed because God's grace in salvation does not flow through bloodlines. It's possible to be an Israelite, to have descended from Israel, to use Paul's language, and yet not be a true Israelite, not be one who, as he puts, puts it, belongs to Israel. How can this be? Because salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not from your parents, not through the family into which you were born. Paul underscores this point in verses 7 through 13. Look at verse 7. He says, not all the children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. He's saying you don't become a true child of Abraham just because you can trace back in your family tree to his origin. That's why Abraham's son Ishmael did not experience God's saving grace, but Abraham's son Isaac did. Even though they were both physical children of Abraham, even though they both received the sign of the old covenant and were baptized. Salvation comes by grace, not through families. Paul makes this point time and time again. We see it immediately in this context when he brings up Jacob and Esau, twins who were born to Isaac and Rebekah, verses 10 through 13. God told Rebekah that the older twin, Esau, would serve the younger twin, Jacob. Why? Why? Why did God do it this way? Well, he tells us, look at verse 11, so that God's purpose of election might continue. After this, Paul's elaboration on the fact that salvation doesn't come by bloodlines. It doesn't come from parents. It comes by grace, God's grace that you receive through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, after this, he begins to deal with some objections, two specific objections to the the truth that God is sovereign in salvation, or as we sometimes say it, that he is a God of sovereign grace. What's the first objection? What's verse 14? Is there injustice with God? And he answers that with a radical, of course not. No way. God forbid, as God has the right to show mercy to whomever he chooses to show mercy and to harden whomever he chooses to harden, so he has done as verse 18 states. And then he raises a second objection. This is found in verse 19. Well, if this is all true, why does God still find fault? Because who can resist his will? In other words, if God is really sovereign like this, then how can we be held responsible? Where's where's the justice in that? The way Paul answers this pushes us all the way back to the doctrine of creation. He doesn't engage in philosophical speculation. He reminds us he's the potter. We're the clay. He's the creator. We're creatures. And the point he makes is that in his sovereignty, God created people to be completely responsible. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, that's okay. You don't have to understand it. 
You just need to see that that's the way it is. That's reality. And we ought to be a people who, in and through everything else, are determined to live in reality. God is God. He has the right to do with his creation whatever he wants to do for reasons that suit him. So let's pick up at verse 22. See how Paul continues to build his argument. In verse 22, he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, God, Paul is saying that God has done it the way that he has done it. He's dispensed his saving grace with sovereign discretion for three reasons. You see the reasons he gives us? One, in verse 22, to display his wrath. God's determined to display his wrath. Two, to display his power, also in verse 22. And then three, which is really the, the ultimate purpose, to display the riches of his glory in mercy. Now that brings us to our text, which is verse 24, where Paul continues in his reasoning. So follow along as I begin to read in verse 24. I'm going to read down through verse 29 of Romans 9. Even us, he is, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. God's grace in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, is for all people, for Jews and Gentiles. That's the point that Paul is making really throughout this chapter, but especially in the verses that are before us this morning. In verse 23, he indicates the ultimate reason that God saves people the way that he does is for the purpose of making known the riches of his mercy, the riches of glory in his mercy. In other words, God doesn't save people because of their status. He doesn't save people because of their wealth, because of who their parents are, because of their ethnicity. He saves people making them vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. The good news of the gospel is that it's an all-God gospel. From beginning to end, it's God's work that brings people into a right relationship with Himself. In verse 24, He says, Even us, this is true even of us, the people to whom He's writing, Jews and Gentiles in Rome. Once again, Paul is emphasizing that salvation comes by God's grace. It is his call that results in a person turning from sin and trusting Jesus Christ as Lord. This call that comes with power from above. A call that you hear and you find it to be irresistible because it opens your eyes to see Jesus and it changes your heart to love Him. It causes you to see your sin, to hate it. 
and turn away from it. God always takes the initiative in salvation. We are spiritually deaf until He comes to us and sovereignly calls us by His powerful Spirit, opens our hearts and minds, enabling us to trust Jesus. That's why we speak of the gospel as the gospel of God's grace. It comes to us by God's powerful work and we receive it out of His sheer sovereign grace. This grace, this provision of salvation comes through what we recognize and describe as the effectual call of God. It comes that way to all people, not just to those who are Jews or those who are Gentiles, but to anyone and everyone who becomes a Christian. And it is available to anyone and everyone who hears the truth of the gospel. So having asserted that point in verse 24, Paul now in verses 25 through 29 turns to the Old Testament to prove it. You can just tell that he's wanting to assure his fellow Jews that this isn't something he made up. This is not something he came up with on his own. No. This is something that was taught in the Old Testament Scriptures as well. In verse 24, Paul mentions the Jews first. But then, beginning in verse 25, he switches the order and begins his explanation by focusing on the Gentiles first. In verses 25 and 26, he shows how the Old Testament prophet Hosea teaches that God's grace in his gospel is for Gentiles. And then in verses 27, 28, and 29, he follows that up by showing that the prophet Isaiah teaches that God's grace is also for Jews. His point is that God has called His vessels of mercy from Jewish people as well as from Gentile people. In other words, the grace of God in the gospel is for everyone. For everyone. Well, let's look at it. Let's see what he says in verses 25 and 26 about God's grace being for Gentiles. The citation he makes is from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and chapter 2, verse 1. Well, who was Hosea? Well, he was an 8th century B.C. prophet in the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north that came to be called Israel in distinction from Judah. He was a man who had a very unusual responsibility. Read the book of Hosea. God commanded him to marry a prostitute, a, a woman who would run after adulterous lovers. And Hosea, was called by God to display God's faithfulness to His adulterous people who ran after other gods. And so he was given this very difficult task to marry Gomer, his wife, who was a prostitute. But even compounding that, Gomer gave birth to three children. And two of those children, God told Hosea specifically to name. And look at their names. The name of one was no mercy. The name of the other is not my people. Now just imagine having a teenager in your house named no mercy. <laughs> Thanks, dad. <laughs> no mercy. You want no mercy? I'll show you no mercy. Right. I mean, it's just bizarre. And in fact, when I was going back over this, I, I was reminded of that old Johnny Cash song. You remember that Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue? <laughs> you know, you remember that song? Roy remembers it. 
I mean, you know, he said, uh, my, my dad left home when I was three, didn't leave much to maw on me. And he said, but one of the worst things he ever did was he named me Sue. And it's a funny song. I mean, if you don't know it, you ought to go listen to it. It's kind of funny. And uh, he sings through this song about how he had to grow up as a boy named Sue. And he said, you know, said some gal would giggle and I'd get red and some boy would laugh and I'd bust his head. And he said, it ain't easy being a boy named Sue. And then when he becomes a man, he decides, I'm going to track down my dad. I'm going to find him. And so he goes all over the world or country and he comes into a bar and he recognizes him. He says, I go up to him and I say, my name is Sue. How do you do? Now you're going to die. You know, and so they begin this big barroom fight and it uh, goes on with great detail to describe that. But then his dad looks up at him after he's been beaten in the fight. and He says, look, I want you to know something. So you have a right to do what you want to do. So, but I named you Sue because I knew that this world is hard and I wasn't going to be around. If you were going to grow up and make it, then you're going to need to get some grit in you. And so Johnny Cash sings, oh, well, that, uh, that changes things. And so he ends the song this way. I think about him every now and then. Every time I try, every time I win. And if I ever have a son, I think I'm going to name him Bill or George, anything but Sue. <laughs> I mean, it's just the, the strangeness of the names. No mercy. Not my people. But God was doing that for a purpose. He was doing that to teach truth about himself and about his saving purposes. When the ten tribes that constituted the northern kingdom of Israel rebelled against God, he declared his judgment on them through the prophet Hosea. Though they had been born of Abraham, they were now not his people. Though they had been given great blessings, they were not now vessels of His mercy. In a very real sense, that's the condition of all of us by nature. We come into this world. We're born into this world. Every one of us by nature, in the language of the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, as children of wrath. By nature, everyone is far from God. No matter what your ethnicity, no matter who your parents are. And what verses does Paul cite to make his point? That's Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 2.1. In Hosea 2.23, God says, I will have mercy on no mercy. The child, no mercy. The people who are without mercy, I'm going to show mercy to them. And you are my people. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you're my God. It's a promise of grace coming. In Hosea 2.1, we read, say to your brothers, God's telling him this, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. What's the point that Paul is making by citing Hosea? What Paul is doing is drawing out the true New covenant, the fuller meaning and implications of these old covenant promises. And brothers and sisters, let me just tell you, that is a fundamental, important point for reading the Bible. You always read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. 
Let the New Testament instruct what the Old Testament says and means. Never, never try to understand the New Testament in the light of the Old Testament. They say the same thing. But it is the fuller, clearer revelation that must be taken to shine light upon the earlier revelation. So in verses 25 and 26 of our text, Paul writes, As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You're not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. If the ten tribes of Israel, whom God rejected in the Old Testament because of their sin, could become recipients of His grace later, so can the Gentiles. That's the point Paul is making. That's what he says Hosea's revelation given to him by God actually means for Gentiles today. Who are these Gentiles? They're people that didn't have the blessing, the privilege of growing up in a religious home. They didn't experience the blessings that Paul articulates earlier in this chapter in verses 4 and 5 where he describes the Jews as those who have the adoption, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs. And yet, they too can experience God's salvation. How? By God's grace. By God's call. As verse 25 puts it, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Her who is not my beloved, I will call my beloved. Verse 26, you who are not my people, there, there they will be called sons of the living God. This is great news for the whole world. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to have a religious background. You don't have to be brought up in religious things to receive the gift of God in salvation. You don't have to have Christian parents to become a Christian child. It's just as the Apostle John said in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13 that Jorge read earlier. Let me read it again. Jesus came to His own and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. He writes to those who've been converted, some out of Gentile backgrounds. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you grow up in a religious home? Were your parents faithful Christians? Did you go to a healthy, faithful, Christ-honoring church as you grew up? I would say, knowing what I know, that for many of us in, the room, in this room, the answer is no. But here's the good news. Even though you didn't have those blessings growing up, that's no barrier to receiving God's grace in Jesus Christ in salvation. Because it doesn't depend upon your background. It doesn't depend upon your pedigree. It's all by God's grace. Jesus came into the world to save sinners as sinners. He himself said that he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Have you ever felt on the outside of Christianity because you don't know the language? 
You don't understand the words. You don't understand the Bible as much as the Christians that you do know. and You just have a lot of doubts and questions about things. and You just don't have the religious background. You think, well, maybe, maybe this way of living is not for me. Here's the good news. It is for you. Because it doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon God and His grace. This is what Paul's been writing about this whole letter thus far. We saw it in Romans 4, 5. Do you remember? He says, God justifies the ungodly. Do you know that you're ungodly by nature? Then you're a candidate for His grace because that's the very people that He justifies. If you've had these arguments in your mind, yeah, but you know, I don't know. And yeah, but I didn't. And I've had Throw them away. And just come to God and say, that's me. That's me. No privileges. No background. Lots of baggage. God saves by His grace. And there's grace enough for you. So come to Christ. Trust Christ. Venture your whole life upon this crucified, risen Savior, acknowledging that He is the only Savior that this world has. You see, God's Word has not failed. He's always had a plan that His salvation should go to the ends of the earth. His saving grace was never just for Jews only. As His old covenant people, they served a purpose. But that purpose was never to be the exclusive recipients of His grace. No, they were a part of His unfolding plan. That His grace is for all people. Jews and Gentiles. So do you want to know God? Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want to be reconciled to your Creator? Then believe this. This gospel is for you. Jesus Christ is dead for you. And there's only one way that you'll ever know the forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God. And that is by coming to the end of yourself, humbly confessing your sin and receiving. You receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ by faith. If you'll trust Christ, He'll accept you. You'll be forgiven. You'll know that you're reconciled to God. Your life will be changed. And you will become a part of His eternal family. You'll become a part of His saved people. Well, after showing that God has always planned to include the Gentiles, irreligious people, in His salvation, in verses 27, 28, and 29, he turns his attention to the Jews, once again, making his point from their own Old Testament scriptures. Not only does God have grace for Gentiles, he also has grace for Jews. That's verses 27 through 29. To buttress his argument, to prove his argument, he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet from the 8th to 7th century B.C. era, but he served, unlike Hosea, who was in the northern kingdom, Isaiah served in the southern kingdom among the people of Judah. Paul is citing Isaiah to support the first part of verse 24 when he says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only. Now, saying it that way, by that, using that word only, you see what he's saying. He's not only saying that Gentiles, of course, are included, because that's his main point. 
But he's also saying Jews are included. At least some Jews are. It's not from Jews only. He's not saying it's not from any Jews. It's not from Jews only that God has called his people. So the point he's making here, subtly perhaps, but nevertheless accurately, seriously, is that some Jews will be included in God's saving purposes in this new covenant era. Verses 27 and 28, he cites Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. Again, giving the new covenant fuller, true meaning of these Old Testament promises. So let me read Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. Again, Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, inspired by the Spirit, gives a rather free rendition of his citation of this. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Verse 29 Paul cites Isaiah 1, 9, which says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us as uh, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Cities on the plain that God rained down hail, firestone upon, and wiped them out. And here Isaiah is saying, as the Jewish nation, Jewish people. If God had not left some of us, preserved some of us, we would have been just like those two cities whom he destroyed. What's the point Paul's making by citing Isaiah? Look at what he does in verses 27 and 28. Paul writes, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Verse 28. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth, fully and without delay. What Paul is doing here is reminding his readers and us of the doctrine of the remnant. It's an important doctrine in Scripture. Now, you know what a remnant is. I grew up in a home where my mom sewed. And so she'd go to the fabric store periodically and there's bolts of cloth that she would look at and, and then there would be a remnant section where they didn't quite fit a full bolt. And so there's things that they cut off that were kind of part of the whole, but they weren't the whole. Well, that's what Paul is referring to here when he speaks of the remnant among the people of Judah. He's just simply underscoring what he said in verse six. Not all who are descended descended from Israel belong to Israel. So he says there's an ethnic Israel and a true Israel, a smaller part of the whole, the remnant. In the Old Covenant, the true people of God, the true Israel, always existed as a remnant within the whole covenant community. Both Ishmael and Isaac were circumcised as children of Abraham, but only Isaac was a part of the true Israel. Both Jacob and Esau were circumcised children of Isaac, but only Jacob, not Esau, was included in the true people of God. You see, this has always been God's plan. This has always been the way that he's worked. He's never intended salvation to come to every member of every Jewish household. Grace never has, it never will flow through bloodlines. Paul underscores this point in verse 29. 
as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Do you see what he's saying? Paul is using the Old Testament. Showing how God made it clear, even through the prophecy of Isaiah, that God's grace and salvation would never exclusively be for Jews, Jews only. Though it would certainly include some Jews, a remnant who would return from their sin and trust Jesus Christ. This is an important point. The family you are born into neither guarantees that you will experience God's grace of salvation, nor does it automatically exclude you from the possibility of being saved. God's grace doesn't flow through families. Now, some Christians stumble at this very point. They think that because they are in a covenant relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, so are their children. Because God has shown them grace, their children, if not inevitably, then certainly very easily will be saved. I recently heard this kind of faulty thinking expressed by a Presbyterian friend on a national program. And these are his words. God actually made it very easy for the Christian faith to take over the world. All you have to do is raise faithful kids to become Christians, to be faithful employers, to be faithful business owners. All Christians have to do is have kids, raise them in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, grow them up to be faithful Christians. Now, I appreciate this, brother, and owning the responsibility and the zeal that is necessary to bring children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because that is our job, parents. God puts children in our home. He's given them to Christians. And we have a responsibility as Christians. But to think that it's easy for Christianity to take over the world, all you got to do is have a bunch of kids, just raise them to be Christians. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not what anything in the Bible says. We need to recognize what a blessing it is for children to grow up in Christian homes. Think of what they experience. If parents are faithful, they're hearing the gospel in their homes. They're being prayed for in their homes. They're hearing the prayers of their parents in their homes. They're hearing the word of God read in their homes. They're seeing repentance and faith in their homes. That's incredible blessing. Brothers and sisters, our children can say, what the children of Muslims and atheists cannot say. Your children can say, my father's God is my God. Before they're born again, they can acknowledge that our home is a home that recognizes the lordship of Jesus Christ. And praise God for that blessing. But do not mistake the rich blessings of being raised in a Christian home as inevitably resulting in salvation. You must evangelize your children. You must teach them the truth of their sin. Their need of the Savior. You must impress upon them that they are in God's hands and they've got to deal with God. Mommy and Daddy can't save them. But the Gospel's for them. And if they'll turn from sin and trust the Lord Jesus, they too will be saved. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. And it is for everyone. But everyone, everyone is shut up 
to the sovereign grace and mercy of God. So parents, evangelize your children and plead with God. Beg God. Don't stop praying to God as long as you have breath. Plead with God to do for your children what He has done for us. Well, the good news is that this is the way that God saves, has always saved sinners. It's the way that He's always intended to save sinners. His gospel of grace is available for all people, not just Jews, but for both Jews and Gentiles. So quit trusting yourself and your privileges. Quit despairing over your disadvantages or lack of religious background. Come to Jesus Christ, trust God, take Him at His word, and receive the grace of God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us never forget that we are children of grace. What makes you and me different from the Muslim, the atheist? It's the grace of God. It's God's grace. If it were not for His grace to us, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. God had not come and called us by His powerful call out of our sin to trust Jesus Christ and Lord. I was blinded by my sin. Had no ears to hear His voice. I didn't know His love within. I had no taste for heaven's joys. Then Your Spirit, God, gave me life. You opened up Your Word to me through the Gospel of Your Son. You gave me endless hope and peace. Can you sing that? Is that your honest testimony? If so, then brothers and sisters, let's praise God for His grace. Let's trust Him for grace to live in a way that we can magnify that grace to His glory from this day forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for such grace. We thank You for including us. We don't have anything to commend ourselves to You. We look back on our lives, the most religious among us would have to confess that You'd have been justified treating us like Sodom and Gomorrah. But You saved us. You gave up Your Son for us. And you've made us stewards of this only message that will save anybody who believes it. And oh God, we long to see people believe it. But you must come and open their eyes. You must change their hearts. You must call them with that call that they cannot deny, that they cannot resist. Oh Lord, please come. Own your word in our homes, with our children, with our friends, our loved ones. Show them Christ. Cause us to live with joy and thanksgiving that you have poured your grace out upon us. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for all that you've done for us in your son. So help us. Help us to live so that Christ might be magnified in our lives. For we pray in his name. Amen.